Okay, today we are in Nehemiah. We'll be starting chapter 9. And let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for again for the chance to study your word, uh, study some of this historical record of your people as they return to the land and, and are uh, basically trying to get their spiritual act together, Lord. And, and uh, this is an encouragement to us because it seems like we're continually trying to get our spiritual act together. And this is guidance and help for us to know how to do it, how to be, in, be encouraged to study your word and to see the results of that. And we just pray you'll bless our time now and uh, help us to understand the things you want us to know from your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, to get our context today, we are going to do some reading. I've been trying to pick our passages to avoid all these lists of names. So, so we're going to skip down to, chap, to in chapter 9 to verse 5, starting after the names, 5b, and we will read through verse 15 in chapter 9. So Marie, 5b, start right after the names and read for us. And Pethelite said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their stars. Star- 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 <laughs> oh, yeah. All their starry hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and bought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful in your sight and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, Bethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Gugashites to give it to his descendants. You have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into the mighty waters. You can say pass if you want to. No, that's okay. 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 And uh, with pillar of cloud, you led them by day, and with pillar of fire by night, to to light uh, for them the way in which they were to go. And you came down from Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. So you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments and statutes and law to your servant Moses. You gave them bread from heaven for their comfort and brought them water out of the rock for their church and told them to go in to possess the land which you have sworn to give them. Okay, that's far enough for today. Probably won't get that far. Um, just in general, we've been studying Ezra and Nehemiah that's the portion in Israel's history 
after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and took everybody captive for 70 years, God had the Persians destroy Babylon under King Cyrus. They were sent back uh, to Jerusalem to build the temple. It took them 20 years off and on starting and stopping to do that. And then later Ezra came, um, began teaching the law to the Jews who were there. Then Nehemiah came, and his purpose was to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. So those are the things that have happened. We're about, right now we're about 90 years, <clears throat> excuse me, after they returned to Jerusalem. Um, probably around 440 B.C., just to put it in rough context. So we had been studying last week, and we finished up chapter 8. This was the seventh month of the year, the religious year. On the first day of the month, they have the Feast of Trumpets, which is their civil calendar starts on the seventh month. So it's kind of like New Year's Day. So it's a feast, a holiday, and if you remember, Ezra had read the law to them, and they had realized how sinful they were, and they all started weeping and crying, and, and the Ezra and the leaders and the Levites said, no, 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 today's the day of celebration. Go out, you know, eat the good food, enjoy yourselves, celebrate. And so the people did. <clears throat> then on the second day of the seventh month, they had, it wasn't of any... Uh, prescribed holiday, but they had a special scripture training session for the heads of the families. And lo and behold, they discovered that there was a feast coming up on the 15th, which is called the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Ingathering. And they learned that they were supposed to live in booths on that day. You know, it's a feast they had been celebrating, but they hadn't bothered to build the booths. So they got all excited about that, and they sent out a proclamation to all the people. You know, let's get all the branches. Come to Jerusalem, bring branches. We'll build booths, and we'll camp out for seven days and have a celebration. <clears throat> and uh, so that's what they did. It was uh, basically a time of great joy, and Ezra, who wrote this book, points out that they hadn't lived in booths since the time of Joshua, when they actually had to live in booths before they entered the land. So God has said, I want you to live in booths to remember this, but they never did that particular thing. So, so they lived in booths, and they had uh, uh, a great rejoicing. <clears throat> now this festival lasts, to, lasts seven days, and one of the things that they're supposed to do every seven years is read the scriptures. They're supposed to be read aloud to the people. For those seven days. And then the eighth day is a, a day of solemn assembly, which is like a Sabbath day, a day of rest. Now, since it starts on the 15th, the eighth day is the 22nd day of the month. We had looked back at Solomon when they dedicated the temple at this time of year, and it says on the 23rd day, he sent everybody back home. You know, festival is over, he sent them home. Now, today, we're starting in chapter 9, verse 1, and we're not on the 23rd, we're on the 24th day. So this is two days after the festival ended and, the, and they had their Sabbath. So looking at uh, chapter 9, looking at verses 1 and 2. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. 
And the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So again, the people assembled two days later after this solemn assembly. It's now the 24th of the month. They had been celebrating, but now the celebration is over. So this is a major mood change here. Um, Now we're going to have a time of introspection, a time of repentance, and a time of mourning over the, the sins, their sins and the sins of their fathers. And it says they come with fasting, sackcloth, and dust on their heads. And these are all the common signs of um, grief and mourning. Let's look uh, in Esther, next book, chapter 4. Someone like to read verse 3 for us. Okay, so here we see the sackcloth, the ashes, the weeping. Um, you know, back at the, earlier in chapter 8, you know, the first time they heard the, um, the, the teaching from the, the law, they had wept and had grief. At the, and that wasn't the right time, though, for it. But now it is. Um, let's look at Jonah also, Jonah chapter 3. kind of a hit and miss for me, making sure I can find where Jonah is. Jonah chapter 3, would someone like to read verses 6 through 9? When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Okay, so this is, this is an excellent description and illustration of what repentance and confession really is. And it's coming from the mouth of a Gentile pagan. <laughs> he understands this. Yeah. I'm having a picture of sackcloth and ashes on all the cows. Oh. <laughs> you know, our, if our cows want to go somewhere, they go. If they want food, they go food. Yeah. 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 So you're withholding food, but um, <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to be a, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so, so the people who come with, I mean, I mean, even the Gentiles mourned and expressed grief this way. Mm-hmm. You know, this was common. It wasn't just a Jewish thing. It was, uh, this was the way you, you expressed grief. Um, now, the other thing we see in these two verses is the separation of Israel from the foreigners. Um, you know, in verse 1, it talks about the sons of Israel, and then in verse 2, it talks about um, the descendants of Israel. So the emphasis is on those who are Jewish by blood, by birth. Um, and so the issue that we're going to see here 
is the covenant or the agreement between God and his chosen people, not between God and foreigners. The foreigners have no part of this covenant. They're not, you know, they're not connected to the law. They're not under this agreement. And so there's no point in them even being involved here in this. Uh, is the, and if they're confessing the sins, if the Jews are confessing their sins and the sins of the fathers, the foreigners have other sins. Right. Yeah, they're, yeah, yeah, they need, they need a Jonah to come to them and they can do like the king of Assyria did in, in that book. Um, yeah, they're not, they're not without uh, blame or guilt, but this is the particular covenant that God made with Israel. And so that's why they're separating here. Um, the foreigners had no part of this, um, but the God's people, they are the ones who forsook their side of the covenant, and so now they are going to deal with it. They're going to deal with God. Um, now, one of the things we've seen in the book of Ezra was intermarriage with foreigners, and we'll see it again later in Nehemiah. You know, some of the commentators bring that up, but I don't think that's the issue here. You know, they're not stopping and saying, okay, who's intermarried and all this. No, it's just, you know... If your name's not written down in the book of the genealogy of the Jews, you're not involved. Just don't bother coming. You know, it's like, it's like when you're having a, a meeting to vote on something and only the members can vote. If you're not a member, don't bother coming. It's that kind of a thing. So I, I think that's kind of what the separation is here. But it says the people stand and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Now, when we've been reading about the expressions of grief, were the people standing? No, they were sitting in the ashes and laying on the... They fell to the ground. Uh, let's go back to uh, Ezra chapter 9 and verse 5. And we see Ezra grieving. Ezra 9, 5. Would someone like to read that for us? And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Okay, so this, to me, that's, this is a more natural way of expressing grief. But here the people stood, you know, and maybe it was to show respect for God. One of the things we'll see later is that they were reading the scriptures and they did stand for that to show respect for the scriptures. So that might be why they're standing here. But while we're in Ezra, uh, would someone like to read chapter 10, verse 1 for us? While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They, too, wept bitterly. Okay, now where is Ezra at this time? What is his location? Where is his location? Geographic location. He's before the house of God. He went to the temple. Because that was where God's presence was. He went to the temple to confess to God. And so I think now when we're talking about this, this whole um, event that we've got going on in chapter 9, and we'll, we'll see more hints of it, but I think they went to the temple. The covenant was between them and God. 
So they went to talk to God about it. So uh, we'll see it. You know, it doesn't outright say here that they went to the temple, but we'll see a couple other things that hint at that as well. Um, they confess their sins. They also confess the sins of their fathers because they knew that their situation, their current situation, did not happen overnight. It happened over centuries of disobedience, of idolatry. They had to deal with not just their sins, but the sins of their fathers back generations and centuries. So looking on, going on to verse 3. While he stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. So, you know, we've seen it before. They stand for the reading of God's word. And so that's one of the reasons, I think, why, you know, we stand when we read God's word. Um, and to show uh, our respect for his word. So, for a fourth of the day, they read from the law. So, the day was not the 24-hour day. It's the daylight day, the 12 hours. So, this is four hours of reading from the law, followed by... Four hours of confession and worship. Um, now, this reading of the law was probably included um, translation and instruction by the Levites. We saw that back in chapter 8. The law was probably written in Hebrew. People had been um, in Persia where they spoke Aramaic. Some of them did, probably didn't know Hebrew, they had to have it translated into Aramaic. And then they also needed explanation, too, which is, you know, even today why we have teaching is to study and then ex figure it out and then explain it uh, better so, so we pass on the understanding. So they hear the word of God for three hours and then they respond for three hours. Um, and again, this is similar to what we had in early in chapter 8. They heard the word of God and they responded. They, they had grief in that time. Um, so here they see, um, from, from reading the word, they see their sinfulness. And that results in confession. And they see God's glory and majesty. And that will result in worship. And so that's why it's important for us to be in God's word. So we can see our condition, and so we can see God's glory. You know, if we don't see our condition, we won't confess our sin. We'll just go blundering on in our old, old ways and our old nature, just like we always did. And that's not right. We need to be corrected. We need to see that. We also need to see God's glory, and that results in worship. And, you know, if we don't do those things, you know, our... Spiritual lives will just kind of wither up. You know, we'll just show up for church on Sunday morning and go back and be ignore God the rest of the week. There will be no vitality to our spiritual life. Okay, so let's go on to the next section. Verse 4 and 5a. This is mostly names. <clears throat> um, So in, in verse 4, we have eight names. And in verse 5, we have eight names. Five names are repeated in both lists. Now, it does identify all these people as Levites. 
And what I think what we have here is we've got two different parts of this worship service. Verse 4 describes the eight Levites who led the first part of it. Verse 5 then describes the eight Levites who led the second part of this service. And of that group, five were in both, both parts of the service. So that seems to make the most sense to me. Um, but it starts out in looking at verse 4. Um, in New American Standard, it says, Now on the Levites' platform stood Jeshua and then the others. Um, this word platform, you know, I think other translations say stairs, which is, as best I can tell, better translation. If we remember, uh, Ezra read the law back in chapter 8. They built a scaffold and he sat on The word for that is tower. The word here is to go up or to climb. And so it's probably stairs. And, and one of the things that the commentary said is that in the temple, again, the temple was built on a platform. And so you had stairs going up to it. And during their worship services, the Levites would stand on the stairs, and that's where they would lead music, that's where they would lead worship. And they believe that that's what this refers to here. So they're at the temple, and they have the stairs, and the Levites are leading this worship service, this service of first confession of sins and then also worship. And so they are on the Levites' stairs. This is where they stand. They have singers. They have those who... who lead the worship. Um, and it says here at the end of verse 4, it says they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. It doesn't say what they, tell us what they say. But this word for cry is usually used in scripture for crying out for help or crying out in fear or anguish. And so I'm thinking this may be more of the the confessional part, where they're crying out to God, um, you know, have mercy on us. You know, we are sinners, have mercy. And that's why they're crying out. They're crying out for God's grace and mercy and help because they recognize their sin. <clears throat> now, going on to verse 5, we have this, um, this second group of Levites and they say, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. So they're commanding the people to rise up, <coughs> excuse me, and praise God and worship God. So we've got, again, we've, we saw back in, in verse uh, 3 at the end, it says they confessed and they worshiped. So this first group of Levites lead the confession as they cry out the second group of Levites will lead the worship, the praise. And so this, this seems to make sense here. Um, and starting in verse 5, we have, basically it's a psalm. The commentaries all compare it to other psalms, um, in particular 106. And I, I think there was a long list of like, there's like a half a dozen psalms that are like this. And they follow the same general pattern. So this is a psalm. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we kind of have to shift gears. We've been going through a text on history 
now all of a sudden we have a psalm. So I have to kind of sh shift our gears a little bit and think in terms of a psalm. So looking at 5b and 6, it says, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may the, thy glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. Thou alone art the Lord. Thou hast made the heavens, and the, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. Thou dost give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before thee. So this is a call to worship God. Um, he says, God is glorious, God is to be exalted. And God's glory is exhibited here in verse 6, through his creation. And creation is one of the main proofs in Scripture that God is God and none of the idols are. Um, let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 10, where it's stated pretty bluntly, shall we say. <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 10, would someone like to read verses 11 and 12 for us? Tell them this. These gods who, who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. And 12-2. Yes. But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. Okay, so here's the contrast. All these so-called gods, these idols, who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish. But the true God who did make the heavens and the earth is the one who who will go on and, and be the judge over the others. Um, I had pointed out one time, when you get into Isaiah chapters 42 through 45, Isaiah is ministering to the northern kingdom that has gone into idolatry, and he's giving them proof of who God is. And the two main things he hits there is, one, God is the one who um, knows the future and can send prophets and prophecies that come true. Idols can't do that. And then the second one is, God is the creator. Um, you know, when you start denying the passages in the scripture that talk about God's creation and God's prophecies coming true, if you start glossing over those, those are what prove God's glory. It's almost blasphemous to say, oh, no, I don't think God created the earth. God says, no, this is the proof of who I am. You say, ah, I think it was just an accident. It just happened, you know. Um, and if you it's one of the reasons I enjoy creation science because you start looking at the actual, I would call it the atheistic creation myth. You know, the standard model that the astronomers put forth. It doesn't happen. It just can't happen. That's why you have a lot of people who believe in uh, intelligent design. They don't want to admit that there's a God, but they know it couldn't have just happened. It must have been some intelligence behind it. But they won't recognize that to have intelligence, you have to have somebody there with intelligence who is, you know. So they're kind of straddling the fence. But, but yes, this, the creation proclaims the glory of God. If you deny creation, you're denying God's glory. And I don't think people realize how serious that is. <clears throat> okay, so let's look at this uh, creation. It says, he made, the, he made the heavens the heaven of heavens with all its hosts. So he's talking about the highest heavens, not just it, 
to distinguish it from the atmosphere. You know, he's not talking about the birds flying around in the clouds. And he's talking about the highest heaven, the place where God dwells. Um, and this includes their host. Who's the, who's the host here? We have the host again down in, at the last part of the um, verse. The heavenly host bows down before him. And so there's a legitimate debate. Is the host refers to the stars or does it refer to angels? Excuse me. NIV, that says starry host. I think that's what Joe read from. Yeah. Okay. Starry is not in there. They have, um, I guess, decided that it means stars, and so they translate it starry host. I don't think that's the right answer. I was about to say sorry host. (laughs) (laughs) So let's, one of the things that, you know, when, when you get to a psalm, you're talking about Hebrew poetry. Uh, and there's a lot of, they, they use parallelism, you know, compare things together, contrast things. So we have the heaven with its host, followed by the earth and all that is on it. What's on the earth? Animals, yeah, living things. The seas and all that is in them. What's in the seas? He's talking about the animals, right. And then the next verse, thou dost give life to all of them. Who has life? The animals, the created beings. And so if if we follow that pattern, then he creates heaven and the angels that dwell in it, the created beings. And he created earth and the animals and the humans that dwell on it. And then he created the seas and the fish and the animals that dwell in the sea. So, um, and he is the one that gives them life. There's another place. God's the one who gives life. It's not a chemical reaction that evolved. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, that's you start really thinking about what it takes to evolve and the lack of all the... There's no, there's no science behind that. It's a denial of God. That's primarily what drives that. Um, so God creates these three environments. He, cre- he populates them with living creatures. That's his glory. Um, and the verse concludes by saying this heavenly host, the angels, which is really the, the highest of his creation. Um, we you know, Psalm 8, you know, David's amazed that why should God bless man, you know, and raise him above these angels, make us his sons. Uh, so this really is the highest of his creation, and they bow down and worship God. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 5, and we will see this. Revelation chapter 5, would someone like to read verses 11 through 13 for us? Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the and on the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne 
and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Okay, so this passage, not just the angels, but everything else that's on earth and in the sea as well. So all of the living creation of, of God worships him. They acknowledge his glory. <clears throat> so this psalm begins with a call to worship, and you know it extols God's greatness and his glory as a creator. So now it's going to transition more to this relationship between God and his people. We're transitioning now over to this covenant. We're getting down to brass tacks. <laughs> We have, a, we have a relationship with God, and now we're going to talk about that. Um, so looking at verses 7 and 8. Thou art the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. And thou dost find his heart faithful before thee, and thou dost make a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanites, of the Hittite and the Amorite, of the Perizzite, the Jebusite and the Girgashite, to give it to his descendants. And thou hast fulfilled thy promise, for thou art righteous. So here, this psalm reviews their history, starting with Abraham. Um, God calls, he chose Abraham, he took him out of Ur. So this was uh, basically a pagan region. God took him out of this paganism, uh, changed his name to Abraham. It says that... uh, In verse, start of verse 8, and he says, Thou dost find his heart faithful before thee. This does not mean that Abraham was trustworthy and dependable. It means that he trusted God. His heart was full of faith in God. And so we have a couple New Testament passages that really emphasize Abraham's faith. So let's turn to Romans chapter 4. I think maybe this is a little longer passage, so we'll read around again. Romans 4, verses 16 through 22. And Marie, you want to start for us? That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, the father of many nations have I made you, in the presence of him who, whom we, he, he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls unto the being that, that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead, since he was about a hundred years old and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Okay. So the the Bible tells us when you get to be 100 years old, you're as good as dead. This is one of the I think, two places where New Testament or Abraham's called as good as dead. <laughs> so God 
You know, God is able to give life to the dead. That's the point here. He was, God gave him a son. God promised Isaac. And Abraham believed that. His heart trusted God, despite the fact that it's not possible. This was not possible. But God did it. Abraham trusted God to keep his word. And, and that trust in God is what God appreciated. You know, I don't know if you've ever been in a position where people just didn't trust you. That's not something that makes you happy. You want people to trust you. you know, and, and, and God wants us to trust him. And that's what he rewards. Let's turn also... To James. <clears throat> James looks at this a little bit differently. <clears throat> James chapter 2, would someone like to read verses 21 through 23? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar, you see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Okay, we have the same Old Testament quote. Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Um, What James is saying here is, you know, you say you believe, prove it. And so this was, God tested Abraham by having him offer up Isaac. He was going to kill his son. This was the son who was the heir of the promise. How, you know, again, how can his son be an heir if he's dead? He trusted God. He did what God commanded him to do, even though it didn't make any sense. But he trusted God. And so he demonstrated his faith here. He didn't just say it and, you know, have God do something. And, and But here he, he actually demonstrated it. <clears throat> okay, so the rest of verse 8 deals with the covenant. Going back to Rome, or excuse me, Nehemiah chapter 9. God makes his covenant to give Israel the land of Palestine. And God is praised uh, for his righteousness in giving them the land of and keeping his word. And that's what it says at the end. Uh, thou hast fulfilled thy promise, for thou art righteous. So, I've noticed a lot of times, that, you know, in reading through the Old Testament, how important the land is, the issue of the land. You know, we talk about all these different covenants, but the thing I see over and over again is land, 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 land. You know, they were deported from the land because they had sinned. And when they repented, God brought them back to the land. You know, you even read in the future, in the millennium, there, you know, the, God will sound the trumpets, the angels will go out and bring in the people from the four corners of the earth, world back to the land. That is what God promised them. And so that, that becomes very much key. And, you know, it's, in, in a way, it doesn't seem like a spiritual promise. But it is a promise. It's a real, legitimate, physical promise. They will live in the land. And God will dwell in their midst in, the, in Jerusalem because he's chosen that city. So there's actual physical proximity. And that's, 
Um, very important part of the whole covenant and the mindset of the Jews. Um, also, as you go through the, all the technicalities of the law, there's all these rules about the land. You know, you cannot... Boy, you move a boundary stone and they'll take you out and stone you to death. The land is important. Um, and again, we've, when we were talking about people being in debt and giving up the land. Well, year of Jubilee, all the land goes back to the original owners. The land is returned to the families. Um, we've had the special laws of a family where there were no sons, only daughters. And so the land... The issue was, who's going to get the land? They had to marry within their tribe, and the land would stay with the tribe. They, you know, a, a woman from Judah, who was, you know, if there were no sons, could not marry a Benjamite, because that land then would be transferred to the tribe of Benjamin. And that was, no, it had to stay with the tribe. So there's all these little specific things about land that are very important. Uh, to the Jews and to the law. Okay, so uh, again, we uh, to this point we see God choosing His people and establishing here a covenant uh, to give them the land. He's chosen Abraham. Uh, verse nine. We actually start a new, change the topic a little bit, but so far God is being praised. For creation, for his choosing Israel, that he's shown them special favor here. So that's how this uh, psalm is starting. But we need to close here. So, uh, Ryan, would you like to close in prayer for us, please? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word and the reminders from the past generations all the way up that we need to be in your word and remember you and your promises and that you are faithful to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.